Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah Peck, and this is the Startup Pregnant Podcast. Did you know that your personality can influence not just how you react to the world, but also the success of how you work with other people and who you hire and more? It's true. We are all wired very differently. And this personality wiring can be the reason for why we get along great with some colleagues or some of our employees, but then why others just don't seem to work out very well. It is so important, in fact, to know the personality traits of her colleagues and employees that today's guests shared that she hires based on these traits. She even pitches companies differently based on her estimation of how they show up in the world. We are going to dig into all of this on today's episode. Today, we get to talk to Vanessa Van Edwards. She is the national bestselling author of the book Captivate, a science-based guide for awkward people to level up their social success and banish awkward silences forever. It was chosen by Apple as one of the most anticipated books of the year, and it's already been translated into 16 different languages. Her work has been featured on CNN, Forbes, and she is a monthly columnist for Entrepreneur Magazine. Vanessa Van Edwards is the lead investigator and the founder of Science of People, which is a human behavior research lab. But let's dig into the story behind the story, which is what we get to do today. It's easy to look at somebody else's success and think, dang, that must have been so easy for them. Not true. Today, Vanessa shares a lot of her story with us, including the story of how she actually wrote a completely different book before the best-selling book Captivate, and it totally and utterly failed on so many different measures. So much so that she abandoned writing and she got really discouraged about it after the book launched to Crickets. So on today's episode, we are going to talk about how the science of people started, why being alone, like as an entrepreneur or a writer, can be so incredibly lonely and what to do to mitigate against it. She takes us through the big five personality traits and why they matter so much for company building. And then we get to look at Vanessa's journey into pregnancy and where she's going next and how her pregnancy affects her business as it looks today. Welcome to the Startup Pregnant Podcast, where we talk to creative leaders about what it means to be an entrepreneur and a parent. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. Before we jump into today's episode, I know that many of you know this year we have been running a nine-month mastermind for a small group of startup pregnant women. I wanted to tell you a little bit more about it and clue you in for how you can sign up for the next one if that's something you're interested in doing. We have a small group of women that are coming together to have deeper conversations around motherhood, pregnancy, fertility, entrepreneurship, business building, family, and all of the complexities and challenges that go into each of these things and trying to do them in overlapping ways. We will be kicking off the next round of the Mastermind in the spring of 2019. If you are interested in gathering with other women for open, honest, and deep conversations around what our lives actually look like, not hiding parts of them, not pretending that we're not pregnant, not pretending that it's easy, celebrating the great stuff, all of that, then head over to startuppregnant.com slash mastermind. 
You can get on the wait list for when the next round of applications open. And I have a free email series that walks through how I structure the mastermind, what a mastermind is, how it works, how much it costs. So you can learn more. I'm not going to keep these things from you. I will tell you all about how it works and exactly what we do. And then if it's the right fit for you, sign up and apply and join and make your own masterminds because I so believe that there is power in women gathering together and having honest conversations where we witness each other in our lives, in our hopes, and in our struggles. The link is in the show notes if you are out walking around listening to this right now and you can't write it down. It's startuppregnant.com slash mastermind, and that will give you all of the information that hopefully you are looking for. Okay, let's get on to today's episode. All right, everyone. I am so excited to have Vanessa Van Edwards joining us on the show. Vanessa, thank you for being here. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. So I want to start by you started Science of People. And I want to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about your career background and the story of how Science of People came to be. Like, why did that company get started? Yes. You know, so I call myself a behavioral investigator. I joke that it's sort of just an excuse for me to ask invasively personal questions for my own amusement, which might be the same for podcasts too. You know, we get to ask kind of anything we want. Um, So basically in our lab, I try to figure out what makes people tick from a science perspective. I was a recovering awkward person, still am in recovery, I suppose. I'm always trying to understand kind of the science, the framework, how we're wired and how we can optimize it. I loved books like How to Win Friends and influence people, you know, that classic book. I read it and I was like, where is the research? Where's the science? I like formulas. I like blueprints. And so the lab is a way to try to add some frameworks and science behind the mystery that is being human. So were you a researcher before this company was born? And I'm really curious, like, when did you know that you had a business? Yeah. So actually, I started as a journalist, so kind of a researcher. What I was doing is I was writing a bunch of articles for different like online outlets, like a couple of print magazines. And I love the pop side, right? So I would like go into the database, the latest database, you know, and look for big new research studies. I found that it was really easy to get picked up articles if I did a new study. So I would find the study and I would cover it, take a little nugget and then pitch it to an an outlet. And that worked really well. And I noticed that the articles that really hit well, that got lots of shares were when I added some kind of experiment to it. So for example, there was one ridiculously silly study that came out about how looking at pictures of puppies makes you more productive. <laughs> She's like, <laughs> like, like, who got a grant for that? I don't know. But I found that study. And I was like, you know, I'm going to try it, right? I'm going to do this while I'm writing this article. So I wrote the article about the study. And then I also was like, you know, every time I got writer's block writing this article, I looked at a picture of a puppy and I kind of made it funny. And that article did so well. And I realized, okay, people don't just want the science. They want a little bit more than that. They want to see it applied. They want a little bit of applicable science or action steps. And so very slowly, I I started doing bigger and bigger research to the point where I realized, wait a minute, I actually can make a business out of this by doing courses, by doing corporate trainings. And that's because people were asking me for it. So the bigger the research studies got and the more applicable they got, the more people would reach out and say, hey, like, do you have a, a book or do you have a system about with this? Or have you ever done this with this study? So it was a slow transition from being just a writer to actually being an experimenter. Mm, I love that story. And 
Where are you today? How many people do you work with? How big is the lab? Can you give us a sense of the company that you're running now? Sure. Yes. So we are based in Portland, Oregon. We have only five full-time employees. I say only because we actually downsized a little bit recently. For our book launch, we were bigger. We were doing a bunch of big studies and then a ton of contractors. And I'm happy to talk about the transition from having 10 employees to having five employees and five contractors or actually more than that, maybe 10 contractors. Everything is pretty virtual. We do filmings and obviously experiments in person, but I let all of our team work virtually from different places in Portland. Oh, I love knowing the size of a company and getting a picture of it. And I know the listeners do too. It's like, how did you get your company to where it is? Before we go into more of the stuff on companies, which I have a ton of questions to ask you, I also want to set the stage by telling people you have this best-selling book. It's all about the science of succeeding with people. It's called Captivate. I love the dedication. (laughs) She writes, it's dedicated to anyone who has ever felt awkward in a social situation. So basically, you wrote this book for me and probably like 99% of humans. That either either resonates with people or they're like awkward. What's that? I'm like, you're not my person. You're not my person. (laughs) Okay. We won't get each other. (laughs) That's really funny. And for people, if you haven't read the book, she talks about how to make a great first impression, how to read people's faces, how to connect with people. And there's so much, I'm going to link this in the show notes. There's so many good YouTube videos explaining all of how to connect with people and what to ask. And I have geeked out on it for a long time. But what I really, yeah, I love your YouTube channel. But what I really want to know, I want to know about this book and how you have applied the studies that you've done at Science of People and Understanding Behavior in your own life and work, in building Mm -hmm. your work culture and in becoming a boss. Yeah. How have you, go ahead. I've asked a million questions. Go ahead. No, yeah. Well, what's interesting about it is that was actually a aha moment for me in my own career. And one of my favorite things to think about, and I always ask other founders this, I'd be curious for listeners, like what were the biggest aha moments in your career? And they're usually some kind of a turning point. And oftentimes they don't necessarily have like a physical manifestation. Like my aha moment wasn't my book launch, right? My aha moment came many, many years before that. And one of the biggest ones was I got into this work really for the social aspect of things. So like I would walk into a networking event and like have that pit of of like, I don't know anyone. Where do I stand? What do I say? And so like in the beginning it was, okay, where should I stand? What's the best conversation starter to open a conversation? How do I carry a conversation? Very, very social. The frame was all social. And that was working great. As I was doing research, it was really easy to do speed networking experiments and do conversation starter experiments. What I didn't realize is that a lot of that science also applied to my social work life. And by social work life, I mean the process of my online brand. So like my voice on social media, hiring, especially contractors. So in the beginning, you know, when you're just a single solopreneur, which was very, really exciting years, you know, you're hiring as minimally as possible. You're like doing the bare minimum of what you really just can't do yourself. And so in the beginning, it was like, I'm very bad at image creation. So it was like graphics. I needed a little bit of help on video editing. So I was hiring contractors and very regularly, it would go terribly. (laughs) Like very, very regularly, I would hire someone and either I couldn't find the right fit or I would hire them and it would turn out very differently than I expected. And so my biggest aha was that everything that I was doing socially should and needed to be applied with everyone I was hiring. And so the biggest one was when I finally put it together that personality is not a nice to know, it's a need to know. So 
I've always liked those personality quizzes, you know, like which Harry Potter house are you? And like, you know, Myers-Briggs and Enneagram. I've always loved those personality tests. What I didn't realize is actually personality is an incredibly robust science. So the only personality science that's really backed by academia is the big five. As much as I love Myers-Briggs, as much as I love DISC and Enneagram, those actually don't hold up super well in double-blind studies and academic studies. The only one that really holds is the big five. So the big five are your openness, your conscientiousness, your extroversion, your agreeableness, and your neuroticism. It spells ocean. Mm. And I realized that if I could solve people's ocean, everyone I met, especially people I was working with, everything about their decisions, their actions, and their behavior, not only became more understandable, but also became more predictable. And so I started to make it so that every single person who came on the team, not only did I know their personality traits, but they knew mine and we all knew each other's. And that was a huge turning point in the business. And I'm happy to go through any of and all of those if you want in detail for listeners as well. I do because it's so interesting to learn about. And I think it's contextual because I'm probably going to ask you a lot more questions about it. Yes. Can you talk about it in terms of, of maybe your own traits? Like how did you learn about your own personality or someone you worked with? Yeah, yeah, sure. So for, for the ones I think we could focus on now are the three that I think come up the most often in professional settings are openness, conscientiousness, and extroversion. Openness, that's the one that I think was the most helpful for me. So I'm very highly open. I start a lab. I love new things. So if you're very highly open, see which one sounds like you. So if you're high in openness, you are very adventurous. You love trying new things. You get really sick and tired of the same old habits and routines. You'll do something different just to shake things up. If you're low in openness, you love ritual, you love habit, you love routine, you love having your systems and the way that things are always set up. The biggest way to know is when you go to a restaurant, do you order the same thing every time or do you try to order something new? Mm. That's usually, that's a very easy way to know if you or someone else is high in openness. So I always thought that was interesting socially, right? Like, you know, it's great to have a partner who balances your openness because then you both want to try new things together. It's great to have a friend who balances your openness because then you also have the same tolerance of trying or going to new places. In work, this is interesting because it very greatly affects adoption of new ideas. So for example, I'm high and open. So when I pitch clients, like when I'm doing pitches or elevator pitches or presentations or I'm negotiating, I tend to focus on all the latest and greatest new things, right? Like I would write articles about the newest study. I would pitch a client and say, this new system will revolutionize your sales training. But if you're pitching, if you're a high open person, you're pitching a low open person, that newness actually terrifies them. Oh. So all the things that I'm like offering as a great, new, amazing thing, they hear, oh my gosh, what's going to happen to my tried and proven routine? This is going to shake things up in a way that I don't like. This is going to put me out of my comfort zone. And so we lose more pitches on partnerships because we're pitching with our own openness as opposed to appealing to theirs. So how would you pitch to somebody that's more close to you? What would you do instead? Yeah. So if I know that I have a low open person I'm pitching to, what I actually want to do is focus on what isn't changing first, how easy the change will be, and then backing up the change with really good either social proof or data, because that tells a low open person, ah, it's going to be worth the effort. So for example, let's say that I'm pitching a high open manager on a new sales training. Like we do a body language trainings. The way that you've been doing sales has been stagnant. I have a completely new way of looking at sales. It's from a nonverbal perspective. This is going to change these three different areas. We're going to fix all your stop gaps. We're going to fix all your 
boundaries. We're going to push all the ways that you've been struggling off the table. That's how I would pitch a high open person, very, you know, mm-hmm. kind of obviously way more eloquently than that, but all the new, new, new. A low open sales manager, I would pitch differently. I would say, so here's what you've been doing, and here's why that works. So here are all the things you've been doing, and here's why it works. See these three things, though? These three things don't work. So I have a way of changing just these three things to make it so that what's already working works even better. And here's how I know that works. We've worked with this many Fortune 500 companies, this many sales teams. We do this percent of changes. In that way, it's a little bit of a different shift, if that makes sense. So I'm focusing on what already works as opposed to all the new and latest and greatest. Oh, that makes so much sense. My head is spinning a little bit because I'm thinking even in terms of my partnership and my relationship of like the differences in, you know, the social immediate humans of openness. My husband has the most amazing habits and routines and I cannot for the life of me do the same thing every day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Although this will be something fascinating to talk with you about in like a year or two's time. It has changed as I've become a mother and I don't know if it's because having a child has ratcheted up the amount of exposure to new things. And so I actually crave more routines. I'm really curious how maybe the experience of a new life event can shift somebody's characteristic in one direction or another. Yeah. So what you're talking about is actually called free trait theory. So when you're looking at personality science, free trait theory is the idea that either an event or your goals, like a new goal, can make you optimize or change a wired personality trait. And by the way, when I'm talking about personality, about 35 to 55% of our personality is genetic. So we're given it from birth and the rest is developed. Either we learn it or experiences in childhood kind of format. It doesn't mean it doesn't change over time. So what happens is, is when you have a life event or a certain goal, we can know how we are wired and then either dial up or dial down. So they have found that, for example, women and men change personality trends over time. So men, for example, tend to get less open over time. So when they're young, they want to try all kinds of new things. They want to adventure all over the world. As they get older, they kind of like their same chair with their same shows and their same beer and their same, (laughs) you know what I mean? (laughs) And women tend to get more extroverted over time because they find their voice, they find themselves They usually become more competent in their careers or their raising of their children. And so absolutely, it's the case that a major life event would allow you to free up some of your traits to dial them up or dial them down. Oh, so interesting. Okay, so that was Ocean. And then you had two others that you were going to share. Okay. So I think the other two that are important extroversion, I call it the popular girl of personality. Like everyone, <laughs> everyone's talking about extroversion, introversion. So most people are actually ambiverts. We did a huge study in our lab on ambiversion. But ambiversion is when you've never quite felt like extrovert, introvert fits you. And you tend to flip into one or the other based on who you're around and where you are. So around your people, you can be highly extroverted. Around people who are toxic or push your boundaries, you close up and shut down. Also, ambiverts typically need a little bit of recharge time before socializing. They can be very extroverted, but they have to have either recharge time or buffer time. So most people are ambiverts. And this is really important for your professional relationships on my team, especially. For example, I have a team member who is much more introverted than I am. I'm a high ambivert, so I'm close to extrovert, but not 100%, where she is much more introverted. When I 
throw something at her, like I call her without warning her, or I like want to brainstorm on the spot, it throws her into a little bit of a panic. And so no matter what we're talking about, even if it's something she's really comfortable with, because she hasn't had the prep time to think through it, it's very, very hard to have an open brainstorm session. So I have learned with her that if I want to brainstorm or have any kind of creative back and forth, I should email her ahead of time, kind of all the questions, all the things I'm thinking, ask her how long she wants to process it. And then we schedule a meeting for that you know, next few days or next week. That way I'm trying to honor her level of people exposure and not confusing that with the creative process or the brainstorming process. A lot of people think that like extroverts love to pop by people's offices, you know, <laughs> or call people without warning. And for introverts or low ambiverts, that's really difficult and it makes them feel less competent, even though that, that has nothing to do with it. But it's the people aspect that changes them. You know, one of the things we did in our office when I was working at a startup a few years ago, our CEO was like, probably off the charts extroverted. We ended up picking one day of the week. It was Wednesday. And we said, you need to do all of your press and like meetings and stuff and just be out of the office the whole day. Like you just mm. need to be like, go. He would sit in a coffee shop. People just keep coming. He would have like a 9, 945, 1015. He would have meetings all day. And he was tickled pink. Like he loved it. He could talk to everybody all day long. And the rest of us got a day off. <laughs> and we got to get work done and like think and be uninterrupted for 12 hours. And it was like this accidental strategy of coping with each other's personalities in a really successful way. That's amazing. And what's the third one? Go ahead. Yeah. So the third one is conscientiousness. So conscientiousness is if you're very high in conscientiousness, and this is me, you love to-do lists, you know, you love alphabetizing, you love details, you're very systems thinking. I like to joke that like I get an adrenaline rush from alphabetizing things. Like I put things on my to-do list <laughs> just for the pleasure of checking them off. You know what I mean? Like that is my conscientiousness. I love my to-do list. It thrills me. If you are low in conscientiousness, you're a, a big idea person. You don't want to get bogged down in the details. You're much more about big ideas, taking a step back. You are much prefer to go with the flow, be more spontaneous. And the best way to know the difference is high conscientious people love calls and meetings with agendas. And they want to stick to that agenda. Whereas low conscientious people feel like, oh, an agenda that's just going to stifle us, that's going to not help us be creative. And they often get off agenda and have no problem with it. So those are two very, very different kinds of people. And so if you are thinking about hiring someone, it is incredibly, incredibly important to make sure that they either are balancing the opposite of your conscientiousness because you're hiring them for that purpose. Like, for example, if you're a low conscientious person, your assistant should be very high conscientious because they are stepping up in the area where you are not detail-oriented. If you are working with someone who's a partner where they need to balance you, where you can't be struggling or fighting on the conscientiousness, they should match you. And so this mm. is something I learned the hard way where most people come across as pretty high conscientious in the interview process. Right. Like when you're interviewing for a job, you send proposals out, you uh, pick up the phone on time, right? You're very on it. But then when it actually comes to the actual work, you might have a totally different system. So it's really important to talk to people about do you like agendas? Do you like details? How long is your to do list? Do you have a daily to do list, a weekly to do list, or a monthly to do list? <laughs> like asking them those very specific questions is going to give you an idea if they are your balance or if they're your match. Oh, that's so interesting. And I wonder if self-reporting is even as effective as, I don't want to say like you're trying to catch them, but asking the question in a circuitous way of trying to see like, 
did this person, how did they email me? Did they send me a follow-up? How frequently, like, were there typos? And you just start to see the rigor, I guess, or the behavior patterns. Oh, this is so interesting. It's called behavioral evidence. This also works really well with pitching. So I talked about pitching a higher, a low open person. We think of the same thing. We try to cover all bases. When we're pitching corporate, you know, they're really big contracts. Usually multiple people have to approve them. If someone's bringing me to be a speaker, my email gets bounced around to a couple different managers. So what we've learned to do is if you have a low conscientious person, they don't want a 15 page proposal. They don't want it. They're overwhelmed by it. I think it's kind of silly details. If you are pitching a high open person, they have to have that 15 page proposal. So what we do now is in all of our pitches, we create an email that can stand alone, usually no more than three bullets, right? So it says who we are, what we do, the promise, and then three bullets. That's for the low conscientious people who just want to get the big idea. They just want the big idea, the strategy. And then I'll say at the bottom, If you would like more information, we have attached an in-depth proposal for you, and we're happy to go through it in a call. The high contentious people love that proposal, but we give them the choice to look at whichever they prefer so that when they forward my email on, they're not removing a portion of it that is going to mismatch the person that we're pitching. Because it happens a lot where we have a really low conscientious person up front who's, who's gathering ideas and they forward my email onto the boss or onto the hiring person. And if they don't include everything, the hiring person's like, ah, not enough details here, no. So making sure that you're it. covering for both people, the big ideas as well as details and letting them choose, I think is the best way that we can respect people's personality traits. This is so interesting. And Knowing these traits, openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, has influenced how you hire people from contractors to your team today. What else have you done in the hiring process to make sure that teammates are a really good fit? So, and we can talk a little bit about leadership if you want here. So I think that the other secret kind of hidden gremlin that lurks in workplace culture that no one likes to talk about, but I like to talk about it is my favorite word, which is neuroticism. So (laughs) whenever you say, oh, are you high neurotic? People get offended. Like they're like, I am not high neurotic. And that's because I think oddly in our culture, neurotic has become a really dirty word. But actually, neuroticism is something that's extremely important to understand about yourself and each other. So neuroticism is something I really struggled with because it has to do with how you worry. So high neurotics, if this sounds like you, take all the judgment off the table, you know, no judgment, it's totally okay, neuroticism is not a bad thing. If you're highly neurotic, it means that you tend to have different moods, so varying moods, you go a little bit more up and down. You also tend to worry more. So when you lay your head down at night, you have a whole long list of things that you worry about. You're very, very good at what if scenarios. So potential things that could go wrong. (laughs) If you are low in neuroticism, you usually have almost no mood change. So you're very, very stable. You much prefer data and logic and facts over emotions and feelings and worries. You tend to be the kind of person who says things like, oh, it'll all work out. Or Hmm. don't worry about it. Or, you know, I'm sure it'll all figure itself out. Whereas high neurotics say things like, don't tell me to calm down, right? Never in the history of calm down (laughs) has calm down ever made me calm down. (laughs) And what's really important about this is it's not a choice. So Hmm. I am high neurotic. I'm more reactive to my environment. And this used to really bother me. Like, in fact, my parents would say to me, oh, you're so sensitive. 
you know, like sensitive is a bad thing. And so I really internalized it as something to be ashamed of. And I would try to hide it. You know, in college, you'd be like, I'm the spontaneous cool girl who doesn't give a worry about anything, (laughs) which was like never the case, (laughs) like never, never the case. And so what I realized was, as I dug into the research is that neuroticism is not only genetic, but it's also, it affects how our chemicals are in our body. So without going like too crazy deep into the science and please stop me if this is boring, but serotonin is what keeps us calm. So serotonin is this wonderful chemical of belonging, keeps us calm, keeps us like, okay, we're okay. It's the chemical of belonging. When we feel like we really belong somewhere, serotonin is usually coursing through our bodies. So neurotics produce less serotonin and produce it more slowly than low neurotics. Meaning if you were to be at the office and get a really bad email, right? A client's leaving, you see a really bad testimonial review on your website, your adrenaline spikes, your cortisol spikes, your heart rate pumps, you're like, oh my God, this is terrible. Low neurotics will very quickly produce serotonin, which will calm down their cortisol, calm down their adrenaline, and they'll go, okay, what do I need to do next? Okay, first I need to contact this client. Second, I need to get this review off my website. Third, I need to, they immediately are kind of able to go into solution mode. And that serotonin is working with them to keep them calm. Whereas high neurotics, we carry a long version of the serotonin transport gene, which means we cannot produce it as fast. So when we get that bad email, we are upset for longer. We cannot move on as quickly because we do not have the chemical to help us stay calm and combat the cortisol and the adrenaline. So while our team is calming down and moving on, we're still stewing. We're still like, Ah. oh my God, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? This is going to be horrible. We cry, we get upset. And that's because physically, we do not have the chemical we need to keep us calm. It just takes us a little bit longer. When I Mm. learned that, I was like, oh, (laughs) I get it. So what I encourage people to think about here as leaders with hiring is to think about how you worry. When you worry, do you worry out loud? Do you want to seek people out? Do you want to brainstorm with them and vent? Or do you worry alone? Are you the kind of person who shuts down, wants to be totally quiet, wants to internalize, wants to journal, wants to be by yourself? It's very important to have people who respect that for you. Because if you don't, you're going to be constantly in a state of cortisol and adrenaline. This, I'm like stumbling over my words because I'm taking it all in before I can even ask you the next question. This is amazing. (laughs) We have such geeks who listen to this podcast. Like the, the people who listen are they just love it. So as do I. So this is really a great level of detail. There's a couple of questions I want to ask you. First, I want to ask you about, I don't know this story as well, but you mentioned in our pre-interview about the failure of your first book and that it's linked to neuroticism and worry. Can you tell that story? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love and hate telling the story. <laughs> With any failure, I find that really terrible memories become a little less terrible every time you tell them. So in pre-interviews, I always tell people to ask me, even though I'm always like, why did I do that? Because it always does me a little better. <laughs> so I mean, Sorry, hoping... not sorry. Keep yeah, going. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah, exactly. I, I also hope that it really helps people who have had their own failure stories. It's said that 82% of people have a book in them. They want to write a book. I think that that's probably true, some lurking in each of us. And that was definitely true for me because I was always writing. It was a big dream come true to get published and, you know, have this amazing title author next to my name, right? That sounded so great. So got a great book deal with a major publisher and was so excited about it. 
and wrote the book that I thought I think I was supposed to write, which was a big part of the problem. My publisher was very specific on what they wanted from me. And I, as a people pleaser, totally tried to match it. The book came out and I thought my life would just change and everything would be amazing and my business would take off and nothing happened. Like literally no one bought it. Nothing happened. It just didn't move. It didn't sell. No one read it. I mean, it was the most devastating experience because it felt like I had worked so hard at this. It was this huge dream and it ended up being a little bit of a nightmare. What happened was it turns out that my publisher had actually used a stock image and there was a similar book in the same demographic that had come out a year earlier with the exact same cover. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. It was like horrible. And so I was on a podcast and the interviewer was like, you know, I noticed you have the same exact cover as this competitive book that came out a year ago, but that book was better. I mean, it was just, it was just a nightmare. And so it was one of those things where for probably six months to a year, I just doubted everything. Like I couldn't, couldn't work on my business anymore had no desire to write, stopped writing completely, ended all of my contracts, all of my magazines and outlets, just thought, you know what, maybe I'm just gonna, you know, I actually was thinking about becoming a police officer. <laughs> like that. I was like, I was like, you know, maybe, maybe I'll take this and just totally change careers and I'll never write again. That's how bad it was. And I think that as an erotic, what was happening in my body was this really, really bad downward spiral. And I've now since read about this chemically that when you have a bad event that happens, it can trigger this very, very bad chemical spiral in your body. So you begin to produce cortisol and adrenaline, which inhibits your metabolism. You stop doing all the things you once enjoyed. I stopped working out. I stopped writing. I stopped seeing friends because I was also horribly embarrassed, right? Like I was so embarrassed about this book and all my well-meaning friends were like, how did the book launch go? <laughs> and I'd have to be like, it went horribly. And so I stopped seeing friends. So I was getting all this cortisol and none of my endorphin inputs. So no oxytocin, the chemical connection, no working out, no endorphins, no dopamine, no pleasure. And so it was this really, really bad downward spiral. And if this resonates with you at all, I really, really recommend the book, The Upward Spiral by Alex Korb. He talks about how to use neuroscience to cure depression. And I realized that that's exactly what happened is this really bad event triggered every wrong chemical in my body. And I was making it worse by withdrawing from life. And mm. it took a really long time to begin to get back and try again. And that was in 2011. So I, yeah, I was share that. ask when yeah. that was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 2011, 2011. I think that actually the way that I got out of it, crazy timings, so the book came out in August of 2011 and I was getting married in July of 2012. So from August of 2011 to probably March of 2012, I was like out for the count, right? Like yeah. I was just like, I can't, I can't. And the one thing I had was this wedding and the book and the wedding had nothing to do with each other. Thank goodness. Right. Like and they do each other. And I had all these friends and family who were obviously, you know, they already had to save the date. The save the date went out. Thank goodness. Before the book launch went out. And I think that in a way my marriage and the wedding and having all these people fly into Portland and support me made me realize, Oh, there's more than this. <laughs> it's not just about the book. 
So thank God that timing happened because I think that after I got married is when things finally started to get a little bit better, where I was able to trigger that upward spiral back up again. Mm-hmm. Having an event and having a project that's unrelated to what you were working on and having people around. What did you do after the wedding? Were there other steps? Did you start writing again? How did you get back into it? I could only write if it wasn't about anything the book was about. So the book was actually, it was for youth and parents. It was like the science behind parenting and youth. Oddly enough, I was writing it from a youth perspective. Kind of funny that I'm now becoming a parent. Believe me, the irony is not lost on me. (laughs) Um, And so I couldn't write about any of those topics, but I could write about other things. So I started creative writing. I don't do creative writing now, but I was creative writing just to get that back. Mm -hmm. Um, I started to do more masterminds. So reach out to people who I found very inspiring and supportive. That was really helpful instead of working so much alone. You know, as a writer, as an entrepreneur, we can be alone a lot. And so I started to reach out to more people, going to more networking events, going to more masterminds, and having inspiring, hustling people around me was infectious. I kind of caught their hustle. I caught their heart. I caught their excitement. And that really helped trigger my own feeling of like, oh, yeah, I like hustling. I like starting a business. Maybe if I do this differently this time, it will be different. And it was. Mm. And then what year did the Science of People, the People Lab start? So Science of People started in 2012. Ah. Ah. <laughs> yes. yes, exactly. <laughs> so Isn't that's that exactly, interesting? Uh-huh. So 2012 was when I finally started doing the journalists. I reached back out to a couple of the editors that I had liked working with and said, hey, I'm doing a little bit of a different niche. <laughs> I'm writing a little differently. I would like to write about science, if that's okay. I, liked, I, I pitched a couple articles. And that's when all that started to happen. In the second half of 2012, founded the company. And I'm very grateful for that failure because it let me reset. And it was a horrible way to reset, horrible way to reset. But it let me take a step back and completely start fresh. And I literally got to start with a new name. I mean, I remember my husband saying to me, you know, do you want to take my name? Do you want to keep your maiden name? And I remember so clearly being like, I need a complete reset. Like I need a different name than the person who wrote that first book because it wasn't even me. And so I literally got to start fresh with a new company and a new name and reset completely from the beginning. Mm, That's so cool. And then you've been running this lab for five or six years now. And the book Captivate came out in 2017. Yeah, Yeah. 2017. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I said, I was never going to write a book again. (laughs) I was was like, I'm never doing that. I'm never doing that again. And I was speaking at a conference. I don't know if you know this conference called World Domination Summit in Portland, Oregon. I did a main stage talk on neuroticism. So I was talking about neuroticism, talking a little about body language. And my now editor who works at Penguin Random House, Nikki Papadopoulos, came up to me backstage and she said, I want to publish your book. And this was in 2015. And I was like, "Mm -mm." (laughs) like, not not again. (laughs) Wow. Um, And she convinced me. She convinced me. She emailed me. She's like, we will write the book that you've always wanted to write. She's like, it'll be your voice. You will write exactly what you wanted. And she was right. And I believed her. And this time that this book completely changed my business. And so I think that I had to write the first book and it had to fail for me to write the book that I always wanted to write that actually is helping people. And this book became a big bestseller. Yeah. And it's with Penguin Random House. Yes. And we were in 16 languages and it's 
selling like bonkers. It's like one of those things where I still cannot believe it. Like we just got a big box of the book in Japanese and Chinese and Russian and Turkish. And I'm like, oh, wow. Like if you had said this to me six years ago, I never would have believed it. And so anyone who is having any kind of downward spiral, if you're in the downward part, if you're in the upward part, I would say there is a way to every single experience that you have informs a better experience later. You just don't know how or why. Yeah. I mean, it's so hard when you're in the twilight zone and in that like, in that thickness of it not working to even hold that possibility. It seems unfathomable at times. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the other question I was going to ask, which is now taking us in a new direction was about the leadership aspect. Now that you're running this company and you had 10 people and five people and you've hired contractors, Mm -hmm. how do you know if you're being a good leader or being a good boss? And how have you applied some of this research to changing the way that work looks? Yeah. So I think the most interesting studies have to do with what's called psychological safety. I don't know if you've heard about this concept before, but it's this idea that we need to feel psychologically safe in our work environment. And so I think that as a leader, my biggest challenge has been trying to create an environment that is high open. So we're trying lots of new things all the time. We're taking lots of risks. Like when we do experiments, we don't know what's going to happen. We do big investments in projects. We don't know if that's going to come through. So being able to be very risky and high open, but also creating a sense of psychological safety. And psychological safety is when people feel that they can express their opinions they feel they can take risks. They feel they will not be judged with those experiences or those risks. And so the most important thing that I've tried to figure out is how can I do that with both my employees and every single contractor that comes on? Because the problem is if you don't have psychological safety, people are afraid to be honest with you. They're afraid to give you the bad news. (laughs) They're afraid to tell you no, which as a leader, if you don't have people on your team who are really honest, even like brutally honest mirrors back to you, there's no way that you're going to be able to self-correct or course correct. And so with contractors as well, you also want them to feel, even if they're very new to the team, they can come to you and say, hey, I want to try something new. I want to take this risk. And if it fails, they're not going to be hurt or judged for it. Mm. Oh, that's so important. And I'm sure so hard to implement in ways. Do you have specific ways that you make sure that you are continually cultivating this atmosphere? And how do you gut check yourself, especially as a founder and a CEO? I think it actually has to do with structure. So structure provides its own sense of psychological safety. And what I mean by this is like, so if you have a system for submitting new ideas or experiments, it feels like it's accepted, right? But if there is no system in place or no way for a contractor or employee to submit new ideas, it feels like it's not accepted at all. So it's setting up different structures that reward and create space for someone to try out risks and get feedback. So in your company, even if you only have one other person you're working with, there should be a structure in place for any time they have a new idea or something they want to try. So for example, in our lab, we have a weekly team call and then we have specific questions that we ask every single time. It's a game and I have this on my YouTube channel if you want to play it with your team. It's called Start, Stop, Continue. It's my favorite thing that we do which is first we start with stop. So we review everything that we're working on and we're like, okay, is there anything that is not working? And this is a safe way for someone to say, you know what? I had this idea six months ago, but I am just not seeing it work, right? We're either losing money or students aren't liking it or um, it's just not flowing. It's a very easy way for someone to bring up a stop without any kind of judgment. 
The second thing is continue. And most things fall on continue. Like, yes, this is working. We want to keep trying it. And the last one is start, which is given everything you've learned in the last week or month, is there anything new that you want to try or start? And everyone on the team goes through and does a start, stop, continue. We often use a, a system of sticky notes. I show it on our YouTube channel so you can see how it works. That process is incredible with both teams and partners. I do this with my husband even as well. Like we don't do this that often, but we'll do it usually at the new year or on birthdays where we'll say, what in our life should we stop? Like what is not working for us? What should we continue? What's been amazing this year? And what should we start? Like what do we want to bring into our lives? And so I highly encourage you doing start, stop, continue with everyone in your life on a regular basis. It brings in that kind of psychological safety. Yeah, because having the structure allows you, it's less nerve wracking than saying, it would be great if you would stop doing this thing that really bothers me. Instead, you're like, okay, we're just gonna have these three questions. This is the structure. We know that that's coming. Yes. That's great. Yes. And also like what happens when you don't have the structure is this. I've been in a lot of business meetings where this happens. Maybe this sounds familiar where someone's like, um, you know, can I just bring up one more thing? I know, I know we're done. I'm sorry. <laughs> really quickly. Right. And they begin to apologize to sneak in this one thing that they've been thinking about for weeks, but they've been afraid to bring it up. Yes. This reminds me of an exercise I learned called red hat, black hat. And mm. You go around the table and the first thing you do is everybody comes up with something positive. You know, someone presents a new idea and everyone puts the black hat on and they say, what I really like is this. And every single person has to come up with an idea. And for introverts and extroverts, you can give people space to brainstorm and think and write it down and then share. And then you put the red hat on. If you're like default positive, you have to come up with both. You have to come up with something bad about the idea. And it also takes like instead of the people who are like always the curmudgeons, you're like, no, everyone (laughs) has to like that one. They're always pointing out something wrong with this. It kind of brings it all like to an equal level. It's a really fun way I like getting feedback. And it forces you, oh, it's like, I, I can't think of it. anything positive about this. It's like, think, think, think. <laughs> There's got to be one thing. Sarah, we should do a, a YouTube video on Red Hat, Black Hat. That's so sure. good. Oh, okay, <laughs> we'll do it. Okay. So I don't mean to like surprise everyone listening, but Vanessa is also pregnant while we're recording this. <laughs> and yes. I can't not get to that as a topic while we're doing this interview. So Tell us about your parenting journey and how you got here and where you're at today at the time of this recording. Sure. So I'm 34 weeks pregnant. So I eight and a half months Damn, pregnant. Damn, girl. I, I just have to say that. <laughs> I'm like real pregnant, like real <laughs> yeah. pregnant. So I like to say this is the part of the pregnancy. I've done this every month. This is the part of the pregnancy where my nipples feel like they're taking over the world. That's one thing that's happening. (laughs) Um, They are expanding faster than every business that I've ever grown. It's really amazing. I wish I could learn from their growth patterns. Second, it feels like everything is a workout. Washing my hair is a workout. Getting in and out of bed is a workout. We're at that point in the pregnancy, which is very exciting because it feels like she's close. It's a little girl still so far away. That's where we're at in the pregnancy now. And what's funny is the timing of... The pregnancy was really right. I feel very lucky that I actually worked out that way because I always was not ready. I knew I wanted kids, but was like, not ready, not ready, not ready. And I was like, and will I ever be ready? And people always tell you, they're like, you'll never be ready, just do it. <laughs> and so that always terrified me. And I will say that there was a point where I was actually ready. It was right after Captivate came out. So Captivate came out in April of 2017. And immediately we hit really high pre-sales. So I knew it was going to do well. The first week we hit the bestseller list. And 
this weird thing happened like in my body where I was like, I'm done. I've proven it. I survived this book launch. I'm not done with my business by any means, but it was like, okay, like I've recovered from 2012 in a weird way. Like it was like, it took me that long to come through. And my body was like, I've proven this to myself. Like I can do it. And now I don't need to prove it anymore. And so in that week, I mean, literally, my book came out April 27th, April 25th of 2017. We found out about the bestseller list on my birthday, May 5th, Uh, literally on my birthday, woke up and went to look at the newspapers. And May 6th, I was ready. Like, like it was literally like, I think there was just something psychological. I had to like finish that part of my life. And so we started trying kind of very casually that summer. I was, I had my Ted talk in June and a couple other big speaking events that summer. So we were still like, okay, let's finish the book launch stuff. And then found that I was pregnant in end of October, early November. So it all happened pretty fast, but I think I was finally ready for it. It took me 33 years to finally feel ready for it. Yeah. <laughs> and this like big emotional, psychological work moment almost this big hurdle, this big mountain. Wow. What has pregnancy been like for you? Like, how has it been first trimester, second trimester? Now you're almost towards the end. What has the experience been like? Yeah. The first trimester was very hard in the sense of people do not tell you the truth about morning sickness. (laughs) Morning sickness is all day sickness. What? Like no one ever told me that. So that came as a really big surprise. Now, I will say that I was so ready and excited to be pregnant that even while I was vomiting, I felt like it's a privilege. And that's a really ridiculous thing to say. But I did feel like at least I was pregnant. Like I was like, it's worth it. It's worth it. There was like this moment we were in Australia over Christmas. And it was one of those really bad morning sickness days where I was vomiting on the hour every hour. I didn't know this, but like, there's food poisoning, vomiting, and then there's pregnancy vomiting. And pregnancy vomiting is almost like your baby is just like pushing the the vomit out of you. It's like (laughs) the most violent, violent thing ever. And I was in public sitting outside of the pool in Australia and like moms were walking by and they were like, it's worth it. It's worth it. (laughs) Like that's what people were saying. Um, So the first trimester was hard, but it was doable. And then it's funny, you immediately forget. Like as soon as I got better, I think, you know, week 13, it was like, oh, that wasn't so bad, which it was bad, but somehow your body just forgets. Like, it's amazing how the chemicals work. And uh, the last few months have been great. I have gotten some really well-meaning advice, but I also realized one thing that I wish I had kind of known was that I feel like all of a sudden when you're pregnant, your body becomes a blog like people want updates, like anyone comment on it, (laughs) like people tell you if they like it or not. Like all of a sudden what was like, people couldn't look or comment on your body. All of a sudden, like people are texting you like, how's this part of your body? How's that part of your body? You know, like, uh, you're looking great. You're looking big. You're looking small. You're looking fat. You're looking pregnant. Like all of a sudden, like your body becomes sort of a piece of the public. It's very, very weird. That was the one thing that was like really shocking to me. I love the way that you just said that because it is so strange and so weird and people project onto you so many different things. The thing that annoyed me the most is when people would rub my belly, like especially, I don't know if I should say this out loud on the podcast or not, but I will. Like old men with pot bellies would rub my belly and I just got so annoyed that I'd rub them back. 
Yes. And I would be like, this is weird. Like, this is really weird. I wouldn't do it to you. You shouldn't do it to me. <laughs> yes. And they feel totally justified in doing it because all of a sudden your body is public. So I have a really good comment that usually works to get people to not touch you. Mm. So if you see someone coming out to touch you or like reaching their hand out or they touch you already, what you can say in a really playful way is, oh no, the baby's sleeping. No touching, please. And that that usually works, like especially for old men or like well-meaning grandmas. When you say, oh, no, the baby's sleeping, no touching, right? Like they kind of laugh and they get it. So like that's what I say whenever I see someone reaching out. Oh, the baby's sleeping, the baby's sleeping. They kind of get it and they don't touch you. Mm, That's a good one. (laughs) Yeah, it's really really easy. Yeah. (laughs) That's great. So how are you navigating this as a founder and with multiple employees? And talk to me about whether or not you're taking maternity leave or parental leave and what has changed in running the business because of this. I love listening to your podcast because I think that a lot of fellow founders struggle with this. One of the harder parts of pregnancy has actually been the pressure as a founder with my employees and my teammates. Not that they are putting pressure on me. They are not putting pressure on me at all. It's the pressure I am putting on myself to be some kind of a role model for my other employees. And that has been really, really hard. So, because I just don't know if there's a right answer. Like, I think to myself, okay, like, I want to show my team that I'm still there for them, right? I want to make sure that they know that I'm not going to abandon them. And second, I also want to be a really good example and a really good role model, whatever that means. I don't even know what that means while I'm pregnant. And then ideally in those first few weeks and months postpartum. Yeah, it's such and a lot I, of pressure. I, it's a lot of pressure. And I think that I'm putting it on myself. Like my team has not put any pressure on me in that way. But I also feel like, how do you calculate from a financial perspective? How do you calculate the founder leaving? Like, I don't even know what that formula looks like, right? Like, so when I sit down to think about maternity leave, or I sit down to think to myself, should I take time off even before the baby comes? How do you financially calculate that with your bottom line? Like, is there a formula for that, right? Like, if I don't do speaking events for six months, or three months, or I do speaking events, but I don't do podcast interviews, like, how do you calculate absence? And that's, I think, that the place where I'm at right now, which is trying to put a number on something that is very, very hard to quantify. Hmm. And you're quantifying it because you want to understand how much time to take away or the hit on the bottom line? Like, what's the benefit of quantifying it? Yeah, exactly those two things. So it's one is what needs to be put in place to cover me from a financial perspective or a task perspective? Like, is it hiring someone to replace me? Is it adding more hours for our contractors? Is it putting things on hold temporarily? Can we afford to do that? And then second is what will the impact on the bottom line be for the entire year or even the next year? So that we know to either reduce our expenditures or try to increase revenue. That's a really hard calculation because we're totally guessing. So my guess is, and I don't know if this is true, is I sat down for uh, the first five months of the pregnancy. So right when I found out all the way up until like six months, and I looked at my to-do list and I categorized them into three different buckets. So one is anything on my to-do list I can outsource, got an O next to it. So I use Productivity Planner. Have you ever heard of that planner before? No. Mm -mm. It's a great little... 
Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic, especially for this kind of planning, because I usually use like a sauna, which is like an online one. But I find that the writing one is very helpful for tracking, especially when we're talking about pregnancy. So productivity planner, what they have your five most important tasks of the day. And then you predict how long it will take you. You track how long it actually took you. And then you see the difference. Mm. So it's very (laughs) helpful for gauging really how long something will take you. So for example, if I look at my two list from yesterday, I had emails and I predicted three. It actually took five. By three, I mean they, they use the Pomodoro technique. So it's 25 minute tomatoes. Yeah, you block off. So I thought it would take me three tomatoes. It actually took me five tomatoes. I was going to parse some research that I had to do. I thought that would take me three. It took me two. So you calculate how long things are actually going to take. So then at the end of the week, I would look through my to-do list and write an O next to anything on my to-do list I could have outsourced. So anything that I could have outsourced if someone else got an O next to it, (laughs) anything that I could have done ahead of time got an A next to it. So that meant like I could have gotten this done ahead of time. I didn't have to do this this week. And then the last one was, I have to do it. I have to do it. I I, I had no choice. I had to do it right then and there. Mm -hmm. That allowed me to actually get pretty accurate at what the business would be missing if I stepped out for a week, for a month, for two months, and what I could get ahead on and what I could outsource. I think I have about 70% of my work done through December. From July through December, all the podcasts, all the videos, all the articles, all the newsletters are done. But there is about 30% I will still have to do. I just will have to fit that in flexibly. So I don't think I'll yeah. be taking an official maternity leave, but it's that 30% is pretty flexible. That makes sense. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> it, it makes a ton of sense. And I always find this so interesting. And I'm so glad that you came on the show now at the stage you are in your pregnancy, because something that I think is like a missed opportunity in business is getting this data in the first place. Like your pregnancy yes. is a big research project because how many founders calculate and know what their bottom line is. Like they don't. And it actually might take a leave for us to start to quantify and systematize and figure out. And you having that information while you may, and you might not, this is what's going to be cool to see in the next year or two. It may have a hit on your bottom line. It may not. And it may be really interesting to see how you adjust the work that you do. And you think about what's important. I mean, these are questions that are like at the heart of startup pregnant right now. Just what are the opportunities that we're not even seeing in having pregnant women and founders and women, right, at the helm and making decisions in a different way? Like I think yeah. it's just a cool research project. A hundred percent. I feel like I understand my business now better than I ever have before because I've actually looked at it. So it was such a gift to be able to have a reason to track. If you had told me not pregnant that I had to do all that tracking, I would have looked at you and been like, why? Like, I, like, I learned so much about how inaccurate I have been, right? How much I think things will take either too little or too much, how my business works, where my revenue comes from. And then also the big thing, and I'm sure you've heard this quote before, I I have it pasted on my desk, which is, are you working in your business or are you working on your business? Love that quote. Pregnancy has an amazing way of forcing you to work on your business as you get ready to leave or not. And so for the first time in my life, I think for the last eight months, I'm finally working on my business. (laughs) And that's been a great gift of pregnancy. (laughs) It's so amazing. And 
over here, I use the Best Self Planner. I don't know if you know that one, but it's it's similar. Yeah, similar. Yeah. And there's only three priorities each day and I write them down and I just even having that data of looking back at the end of the week and seeing how long something has been trailing on your list and Mm. where your time goes. It's huge for understanding is what I'm doing effective? Is it working? Mm -hmm. Just even the smallest amount of data, like writing down one thing at the beginning of the day and saying, hey, the most important thing that I need to do is spend an hour writing my or two pomodoros because I use pomodoros over here as well. Two pomodoros (laughs) on my book. (laughs) And I recently bumped them up to 40 minutes because I found the beep in the middle of the writing process so frustrating. But yeah, it's like those little tiny tweaks have given me more freedom and productivity and insight in my business than anything, really. I would say the best prenatal that you can give your business is tracking your tasks and getting the data and then doing start, stop, continue. Because if you combine those two kind of pills of productivity, it's like a lethal combination for making the best decisions you can for the future. So this episode is going to come out right about the same time as an episode I'm doing where at the beginning of 2018, I basically stopped like 70% of my business. I stopped doing speaking gigs. I stopped doing traveling because I knew I was going to get pregnant while I was hoping I was going to get pregnant on purpose. And I think it's like a radical way of looking at like, how do we craft our to-do list and sequence things strategically for the betterment of ourselves and our business instead of trying to do everything all at once and go crazy with it. So Mm -hmm. listeners... That's going to come out somewhere close to this episode. We'll figure out. I'll, I'll line them up. But for you, Vanessa, what's next for you and your business? Like, what are you looking forward to in the next year or two? Oh, my goodness. I think I'm looking forward to depending more on my team. And what I mean by that is, I think not being pregnant, I can get away with just doing it myself or not asking for help or tweaking or fixing things. Whereas I have already sort of seen that my bullshit meter is very high now. And so I'm very excited that I think having a small baby is going to be such a easy reminder of I'm not doing that. I'm not going to that thing. I'm not saying yes to that. And that will really help my business and help me as a human being. And hopefully as a role model to her, to be able to stop people pleasing a little bit less. Ask me in a year or two if I'm people pleasing less. I think, I hope that that will be the case. I'm so excited for you. So while you are on maternity leave slash 30% ding your business, Where can people find you and read and watch all of the amazing things that you do? Sure. So everything is at scienceofpeople.com. And that's where we have like all of our videos and articles. If you like listening, I recorded a ridiculous version of my book as an audiobook on Audible. So that's Captivate. It's also, of course, wherever books are sold. And I really hope that anyone who's listening is willing to share their stories of both failure and success because I found that the more stories of failure I share, my book is basically a bunch of stories of being socially awkward and then how I got out of it, the more successful I've been. And I would love to hear your stories of failure as well if you're listening. (laughs) That's such a generous call to everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Thank you so much, Sarah. And you know, I always say this and I mean it. Leave us a review on iTunes if you like our show. It takes a few seconds and it really does help us a lot. If you want more of what we're talking about, go over to startuppregnant.com and get on our email list. 
we send out a weekly newsletter with time-saving tips for parents and entrepreneurs. And I always include a weekly gadget or tool or something awesome that we've stumbled upon to help make your life just a little bit easier. And as always, you can reach out to us at hello at startuppregnant.com. We love hearing from you.